You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 18th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. It's 20 hundred in Hong Kong, 13 hundred in Belgrade, midday here in London and 7am in New York City. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Briefing starts now. And welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme, as Hong Kong's high-profile trial of Jimmy Lai begins today, the Washington Post has uncovered a shocking fact about the treatment of witnesses. We speak to the journalist who broke the story. Then... I'm Guy Delaunay, Monocle's man in the Balkans, and I'm here in Belgrade to bring you all the fallout from yesterday's parliamentary and local elections in Serbia, from Bulgarian trains to Bosnian buses. We'll get the result of the snap election in Serbia and examine what it means for the country. Ewan Potts will give us the latest business news, and then Fernando joins us to look through the papers. What do you have for us, Faye? Hello, Georgina. Today we look at another failed referendum in Chile, plus free buses in Brazil's largest city. Well, look forward to it. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. Today, Hong Kong's highest profile trial since the 2020 security crackdown will begin. Jimmy Lai, the billionaire media mogul and founder of Apple Daily, is charged under the national security law with colluding with foreign forces. Lai, who's 76, has already been convicted of other crimes, but this charge is the most serious, punishable by up to life in jail. Key to the prosecution is witness testimony from Andy Lee Yu Hin. Now, he's already pleaded guilty under the national security law for his own role in the democracy movement. But an investigation by The Washington Post has discovered disturbing details. Well, Shibani Mahtani is an international investigative correspondent for The Washington Post and co-author of Among the Braves, a book about Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement, and joins me now in uh, uh, down the line. Uh, Shibani, many thanks for making the time to speak to us. I wonder if you could tell us the new information you have about this case. Andy Lee was very close to escaping to Taiwan when it all went wrong. Of course, yes. Um, So in 2020, you know, some may may remember that there was a boat of 12 Hong Kongers that got stopped uh, at sea by the Chinese Coast Guard. Um, On that boat was Andy Lee. He was one of the 12 who were hoping, obviously, to, um, yeah, escape Hong Kong, as as you say. But then they were were caught. They were held uh, basically incommunicado in um, detention on on the mainland in mainland China, uh, you know, where obviously they, they did not have access to their families. They, you know, did not have access to lawyers of their choosing and so on and so forth. So our investigation you know, tried to uncover some details on how they were treated there. And it was very striking um, that, you know, the, the, the people we spoke to who were sort of familiar with the circumstances in which they were being held um, all said pretty unequivocally that Andy Lee's treatment was actually kind of worse than anyone else in the group, even though the group had people who were accused of very violent crimes, in some cases, rioting or arson or so on. Andy Lee was accused of something extremely nonviolent, right? Just colluding with foreign forces under the national security law. Um, but um, yeah, we, we we basically detailed how, you know, you could, uh, there was screams heard from his cell. Um, you know, there were other, you know, really harrowing details of, of the way they were treated. You know, lights were always on 
on in the cell. They were kept in solitary confinement and, and so on. So why would he be subject to worse treatment than the others? Yeah, and I mean, I think that's a, that's a very good question, right? But, you know, three years on, kind of looking at the case against Jimmy Lai and everything that's happened in, in Hong Kong in this time, you know, it is very, very clear that a narrative is coalescing around Jimmy Lai, right? And that narrative is painting him as this, you know, mastermind behind the 2019 uh, protests. It's painting him as, as this, you know, destabilizing force who for decades even have has been working to kind of undermine, you know, Hong Kong's stability, undermine China and so on and so forth, right? And I think now we're seeing all these pieces sort of come together and understand like how valuable Andy Lee and, and his potential cooperation or testimony was to this case, because essentially he's going to help sort of quote unquote prove the prosecution's case um, and say, yeah, you know, Andy was uh, sorry, I, you know, I, I, you know, worked with Jimmy Lai and he was directing us and so on and so forth. And, and are Lai and Lei connected? Um. As far as I know, they've actually never met each other, but they have a, they have a, you know, uh, the prosecution are trying to paint um, Jimmy Lai as having directed um, Stand with Hong Kong, which was this group that, um, you know, was formed uh, basically out of the internet during the 2019 uh, protests. But, you know, really they turned to Jimmy Lai when, when they needed some help. It was never a case that Jimmy Lai was directing them or, or pushing them to do things. It was really the other way around, right? And, and you know, what, 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 the Hong Kong government, the Chinese governments are trying to do is really strip away these two billion and more people who decided to, to take to their streets and, and protest in, in other ways and forms of their agency, right? And say it was never you who came up with these ideas. It was you being manipulated. But it's it's very inconvenient because it's not it's not exactly what happened. Mm. I mean, given this information about the treatment of a star witness, can it be a fair trial? I mean, is it a test of Hong Kong's judicial independence? Yeah, and it'll be very interesting to see, you know, if defense lawyers um, for Jimmy Lai bring this up right in in the trial and say, you know, were you were you mistreated or what what conditions were you held in in mainland China? I mean, I think it's pretty well known fact, right, that um, detention conditions on the mainland are, are not great, right? Even for the for the normal sort of uh, prisoners, or even for people who kind of normally try to illegally enter China, which is what they they were accused of of, of doing, right? So even before the story, I mean, I, the, the the allegations or the, the the fears were always there, right? And and I think it's it's um, interesting to see how much this will be discussed on, on in the trial. Mm. Uh, given the restrictions on reporting there and the lack of freedom of the press, how did you go about finding this information? Yeah, so I think, you know, um, as, as noted, right, I um, co-authored this book, um, Among the Braves, which uh, really was, was sort of um, uh, just a big um, sort of deep dive into sort of what happened in, in 2019. And, and a big part of that was this idea that people were leaving Hong Kong by boat and uh, understanding how and why they were doing that. And in that reporting, right, that's when we sort of heard about the the treatment of, of Andy Lee and sort of went into that a, a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's certainly a risk to doing that. I, I should know that I'm outside of Hong Kong, you know, right now. And um, I think that that makes it a little, little safer to, to do these sorts of stories, especially on the Jimmy Lai case, because the Hong Kong government and the Chinese governments are so sensitive about this particular case. I mean, his international legal team, which are based in the UK, they've been quite vocal about this, right? They've gotten death threats, they've gotten, you know, harassment and, and so on. It's, it's just so touchy um, a subject for them. Mm. I mean, both the US and the UK have called for, for, for Lay's release. Could, could this trial become a global flashpoint? 
Absolutely, because, you know, unlike the other trials we've seen, this is a foreign collusion trial. So it absolutely will bring in the U.S. and it will absolutely bring in the U.K. I mean, so far, even the, the brief statement of facts that have been made public, you know, includes a lot of, um, you know, uh, working, I mean, just basic international lobbying, really, but they're trying to cast it as, you know, collusion with British MPs, with American politicians, um, and so on, right? So I think, especially, you know, as we go into an election year in the US, it's going to bring in a lot of names that are very recognizable um, to, you know, readers, right? And, and to people around the world. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think this is highly, it's going to be highly significant. Shibani, thank you very much indeed. That was Shibani Matani. Now, here's Christy O'Grady with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. The Palestinian Territories Health Ministry has said that 90 people have been killed and 50 are trapped under rubble after an Israeli airstrike on a Gaza refugee camp. It comes amid growing international pressure for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Foreign ministers from France, the UK and Germany all called for a truce over the weekend. Polls opened in Iraq on Monday for the country's first provincial council elections in a decade. The ruling Iran-aligned bloc is expected to make gains, with its main political rival, populist cleric Muqtada al-Sada, boycotting the vote. And a former Air Force base on the northern tip of Scotland has become the UK's first licensed spaceport for vertical rocket launches. Saxavord Spaceport, located on Unst in the remote Shetland Islands, is now licensed for up to 30 launches a year. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thank you, Christy. President Alexander Vucic in Serbia has declared victory in a snap election. Our Balkans correspondent, Guy Delaunay, has more from us uh, from Belgrade. Guy, thanks for coming on the show. Why was a snap election called? If we're asking why the election was called in the first place, Georgina, it all came from this uh, call from the opposition group, Serbia Against Violence, which uh, came together in the wake of these two mass shootings in May, which really horrified the country. And uh, they staged protests every week. And after a while, uh, the government didn't meet the demands they had made, which were for ministerial resignations and for certain television stations to lose their licenses because of allegedly creating a culture of violence. Uh, So the opposition called uh, on the government to have an election. And the government, I would say, rather delightedly agreed because it's got a very well-oiled electoral machine and it knows what it's doing. And are the final results in yet? What we have are projected results, but they're generally pretty accurate, Georgina. Uh, And they indicate that at a national level, the progressives have... Uh, enjoyed an extremely comfortable victory, something between 46 and 47 percent of the vote. Serbia against violence, somewhere between 23 and 24 percent, nobody else getting into double figures. And so if you project that forwards into how that would look in the National Assembly, it would mean the progressives would have an overall majority without the need for any coalition partners. So they would actually have improved their position uh, from the last election, which was only held in April 2022. If we're looking at Belgrade, though, that's a different story. Now, the opposition had really made it their target to take Belgrade municipality, to install an opposition, uh, a politician as mayor of Belgrade. Looks like they've come quite close to that, with only about three percentage points between um, the progressives and Serbia against violence. And that one still has to play out. And what was the turnout? Turnout was about 60%, which is pretty much on a par with what it was in April last year. So it's quite interesting. The turnouts remain fairly 
consistent, despite the fact that we're having elections on quite a regular basis. And again, you've got to consider how large the electorate is here. Now, this is a country of about six and a half million people, and six and a half million people were eligible to vote. Uh, now, you may say, now, hang on a second. How can that be correct? I mean, you can't have people under the age of 18 being registered to vote. But Serbia's got a large diaspora. People all over the world were eligible to vote. Uh, there are also allegations that the, the voter rolls has, haven't been cleared up properly. There, there are a lot of ghost voters, people who shouldn't be on the lists. So when you take all of that into account, 60% is a pretty strong turnout. Mm. I mean, independent electoral bodies have reported a number of irregularities, including organised arrivals of voters at polling stations, photographing of ballots, procedural errors and so on. What more can you tell us? about that? So you might remember at the top of the programme I talked about uh, uh, Bulgarian trains and Bosnian buses. Uh, well, the Bulgarian train is a, is a method of ballot manipulation where you have people waiting outside polling stations with ballot papers that are already filled in. They give them to you know, people they've already agreed that will go in and vote for a particular party. They put those ballot papers in the boxes People come out with blank papers, which they've received from the clerks in the polling station and on the cycle goes. Now, opposition monitors say that they detected uh, several of these Bulgarian trains in operation in polling stations around the country. The Bosnian buses is even more of an issue because the allegation by the Serbia Against Violence Coalition is that the progressives bust in tens of thousands of people, many of them from Bosnia, to vote in Belgrade's municipal elections when they didn't actually have legal residence in Belgrade. And they're saying this is a manipulation of the vote and that with that number of people allegedly being bussed in, it could make the difference in terms of who controls Belgrade municipalities. So they're calling for those elections to be annulled in Belgrade. And uh, they've also called for a protest this evening. And I mean, was there international observation of this? I mean, can there be any proof of of electoral uh, interference? Well, in the next couple of hours, we should be hearing uh, from the OSCE, the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, who had one of the international observation teams at the election. And they will be giving their report. Now, during the day, um, they were saying the process appeared to be running smoothly. And I have to say from past experience, when you get these international monitors at uh, elections in the Western Balkans, they tend to be a little bit more high level in how they view how the process has gone. Unless things are particularly egregious, they tend to give the elections more or less a clean bill of health. So whether they've detected any of these you know, Bulgarian trains or Bosnian buses as being problematic, it'll be very interesting to see. Which issues matter the most to Serbian voters? Well, when you looked at the, the, the polling for all of the voters who were likely to vote for the progressives, for Serbia against violence, for any of the other groups, they were mainly concentrating on the economy. And the economy has been a particularly big issue in the past year or so because inflation has been not just double digits, but pushing up to about 15 percent at certain points. And that's obviously problematic for people, especially when you consider that Serbia is not the wealthiest country, does not have the highest wages in the first place. Mm. So in the run up to the elections, we were seeing President Vucic and the Progressive Party um, trying to reassure voters that they were the safest option for them in terms of uh, getting an inflation under control, pointing out that there's been considerable economic growth over the past 11 years of progressive government, 
and that uh, they were also doing something which the, the opposition didn't like very much at all, so-called helicopter money. So nice little handouts for everybody from students to pensioners, um, you know, anywhere from 100 to several hundred euros, one-off payments, just to make that life a little bit sweeter before the elections. And uh, the opposition didn't think much of that at all. No. How will this result, if it goes as predicted, affect the future of the country? I mean, do you expect any change? Well, it means that, in essence, we continue as we were on a domestic level. Um, President Vucic and the progressives are a known quantity. And while the internationals with whom Serbia interacts would tell you that they want a free and fair election and whatever the voters decide, that'll do nicely. It's been quite clear for some time that they're fairly comfortable dealing with President Vucic and the progressives, that they think that they know what they're going to get with him. And they're happy with him as as they would. They love the word interlocutor here, um, Georgina. And they're, they're happy with Mr. Vucic as an interlocutor for all the stuff that goes on around, say, Serbia's normalization of relations with Kosovo, Serbia's relations with Russia. There have been quite a lot of successes um, which haven't really been trumpeted over the past 10 years in terms of concessions by Serbia towards Kosovo. And we often talk about the obstructions, but there's actually been a lot of concessions made by Serbia. And we've just had one recently with the number plates issue in, in North Kosovo with ethnic Serbs swapping their number plates for Kosovo-issued number plates, which had been a big issue. That seems to have been quietly resolved. And there have been other things such as, although Serbia hasn't imposed sanctions on Russia, it, is, it appears to have, on the quiet, facilitated arms exports to Ukraine. So these are things which have been going on behind the scenes. And I don't think that the international actors will be terribly disappointed with the outcome of this election for that reason. It's, uh, it's the quantity you know. Guy Delaunay, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Let's get the latest business headlines now with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Hello to you, Ewan. Hi, Georgina. Uh, the Chinese government is widening its iPhone crackdown. Tell us more. Yes, you remember this story from a couple of months ago. A couple of uh, government agencies banned staff from bringing their Apple iPhones or indeed other financial, other foreign uh, made mobile devices into the office. And now Bloomberg has found out that this ban has been widened significantly. Now, we understand that multiple state firms and government departments across at least eight provinces, including the prosperous uh, coastal regions, have instructed employees to uh, only carry local branded phones uh, into the office. It's a real step up of the campaign we heard uh, from back in uh, September. Uh, and it's really a broader coordinated effort and a dramatic quickening of Beijing's uh, campaign to, wait, to wean itself off uh, American technology. Now, interesting to speculate Exactly what's behind this move by Beijing? Is it uh, the Chinese uh, government worrying that America's technology is a security risk, of course, which is what we hear from uh, the Americans? Uh, perhaps it is uh, a certain amount of protectionism. We know that Chinese technology, particularly on mobile phones, has really uh, improved in recent years. Huawei launched their latest smartphone just weeks before uh, Apple launched their iPhone, uh, and it's widely regarded uh, as a very strong competitor to the iPhone. Or perhaps it's just Beijing uh, wading in, in this tit-for-tat trade war uh, with the Americans. But yeah, certainly a ramping up of this uh, of this ban on uh, Apple iPhones and other foreign technology 
uh, by the Chinese government. Let's move across to Hong Kong. The financial centre's stock market has been underperforming this year. Why is that? Yeah, it was supposed to be the year that uh, Hong Kong rebounded onto the world stage, leaving behind uh, a troubling period with street clashes, political crackdowns uh, and those uh, very stringent COVID curbs. But instead, 2023, at least from a market's perspective, is turning out to be one of the worst in recent history uh, for the financial hub. The Hang Seng is down 16%, uh, losing ground to rivals in Tokyo and Mumbai. And looking uh, further away from markets, uh, home sales are on track to be their lowest uh, in any year since records started over 20 years ago. And office rents are at their lowest level in 13 years. So it seems that Hong Kong is not yet uh, out of the water. The government's pursuit of political activists has really been challenging ties with the West. Uh, just last week, Washington and London criticised Hong Kong for putting bounties on five dissidents living overseas. So the political crackdown is still continuing in Hong Kong. But I think it's probably worth taking a little step back uh, to say that Hong Kong is still very much the preeminent Asian financial hub. It has had a difficult uh, few years, but uh, it's still home to the regional headquarters, all the Wall Street banks, and almost half of all the hedge fund managers in Asia are based there. So Hong Kong is still a really, really important part of the global financial system. But it does seem that that comeback, which we were expecting this year, uh, has not uh, really taken place as we as we hoped. Mm. Uh, and, and finally, Ewan, what's behind the spike in the value of India's rupee? We had some uh, quite decent uh, trade data from India over the weekend. Uh, the trade deficit uh, came in at just over $20 billion in November. That was down from a uh, record set in October and lower than uh, economists were expecting. It's really a combination of uh, lower oil imports. Of course, the oil price has fallen a lot uh, over the last few months. India is a big importer of oil and there's been falling gold imports. Uh, this, particularly this time of year, India imports uh, a huge uh, amount of, of gold. Uh, I mean, the growth story is really an incredible headwind uh, for an incredible tailwind, I should say, for the Indian rupee. It is uh, the world's fastest growing economy of any uh, notable size. Uh, growth is around 7.5% year on year. It's really stolen uh, China's crown as uh, the fastest uh, growing major economy in the world. Uh, so uh, really a fascinating uh, picture to follow and worth, worth tracking that rupee. Absolutely. Ewan, thank you very much indeed. That's Ewan Potts there. And you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Finally today, our senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, is with me in the studio to look at what's making headlines in the papers. Fernando, as we know, you are from Brazil, and so this is taking a very uh, South American LATAM uh, look at what's going on. Let's start with Chile. Yes, let's start with Chile, another big story from there, uh, from La Tercera, one of their main uh, dailies there. Once again, Georgina, Chileans rejected uh, a new draft for their constitution. Uh, and let's just talk historically. The current constitution was designed by dictator Augusto Pinochet in the 80s. Last year, they've tried uh, one draft for the constitu constitution, which was also rejected. Uh, but 
this time was rejected for different reasons. So last year, the constitution was very progressive. It gave a lot of rights to the indigenous uh, people, you know, women's rights, among other things. But I think a certain sector of society thought it was perhaps a bit too progressive, a bit too left-wing at times. But this time was completely the opposite. Uh, the center-right and the far-right uh, parties as well drafted this constitution because they had the majority, you know, when it comes to kind of to, to, to draft this version of the constitution. But I think the public once again said, oh, that's a bit too right-wing. So I think we have we have to, I think Chileans in a way, they want somewhere in between, mm -hmm. uh, which was not offered uh, to them, neither last year, neither this year. Uh, and Gabriel Boric, which is a progressive young president from Chile, he said, during my term, there will be no more referendums because we have more urgent issues to deal with mm. as well. Let's go to your home city, that's Sao Paulo. Yes. Uh, interesting story from Folha de São Paulo, and I was a little bit surprised about that. So the current mayor, Ricardo Nunes, from the MDB party, the center-right party, he decided, well, there's a new policy that every Sunday all buses in the city of São Paulo will be free. Uh, it's interesting because that's been kind of, uh, you know, a long-term left-wing policy by uh, by the leftist parties, you know, and, and now they're saying, oh, he stole our idea uh, because there will be elections uh, in every single single Brazilian city next year. Uh, and Ricardo Nunes, that was, I mean, mildly funny. He went on a bus, of course, to say, hey, I'm here in the bus and now it's free. I don't think the public was very happy with him. Uh, although I think this policy might be welcomed by many people from my city, Sao Paulo, but I think somebody showed him the middle finger. They're not happy with other of his policies as well. But it'll be interesting to see the election uh, next year because there is a candidate, Guilherme Boulos, from the leftist party, PSOL. He's the current favorite. So clearly, Ricardo Nunes is a bit scared and I think he's trying to have some policies like this uh, to change I very much welcome I think people from Sao Paulo you know they are tired they have a tough life mm. I think why not and do you think it, this is something that will catch on in the rest of the country I think so we're talking here about Brazil's largest city and I think everything that happens in Sao Paulo in one way or another will have uh, repercussions for other cities in the country as well mm. now to Rio where summer season is full on so we're thinking tiny bikinis and Copacabana Beach but it's not as great as all that unfortunately I mean that's that's the story of Rio, one of the most beautiful cities in the world, but with so many problems. And the story of Global talks precisely about that. I mean, it's funny because the story in a way it's fairly negative but they have this beautiful uh, image of Ipanema Beach and you know it's 32 degrees today it's going to be balmy it's lovely the city is doing well when it comes to tourism but there's been a spat of robberies uh, especially the story was talking about in the iconic neighborhood of Copacabana uh, there's been quite violent robberies there's been a lot of videos I think people are quite scared so because of that there are more police officers in the streets but Brazil is such a complex country because at the same time that you want more police in the streets, you're also scared of police violence, which also happens a lot in Brazil. So it, it, it's, it's very unfortunate. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and of course, people are scared. Mm. I think even if you're a tourist, I hate telling my friends when you go to Rio, you know, don't wear any jewelry or just be careful. It's such a shame because it's a beautiful city. Uh, but who knows those new policies and more police officers might improve, uh, you know, the city a little bit. Yeah. Fernando, your official title here is Senior Correspondent, but you're also the person behind our playlist. Yes. And we have a special Christmas playlist. What makes a good Christmas song? Because just before this programme came on, we were listening to one and unanimously agreed that that wasn't it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, may I ask which one was it? It was... 
Cliff Richards mistletoe and got wine. Got it, got it. But we do have some excellent <laughs> ones. We have Brenda Lee. We had this conversation a few weeks ago, how she's number one in the US with her iconic track. We, we added a new ones as well, the share one, DJ Play a Christmas Song. I think this could be a classic in the coming years as well. And I agree with you. To be honest, some Christmas songs, they're not as good as it sings. For example, I had the executive decision to delete one song from the playlist. It was, was it? it was by Chris Hart. Nothing against Chris Hart. If you're listening, loves to, lot, lots of love to you. But he had a very bad version of Last Christmas. And I said, no, 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 no. Let's remove from the playlist. Well, I mean, uh, that's, that's the other thing that happens is that we see, and I mean, not just on our playlist, but, but all across, so many cover versions of the same tired old songs. We need originality. We need more share. DJ play a Christmas song. That's quite original. Yeah. You know, so I think that's my intention. I'll try to do a little purge of some bad covers and more originality here at Monaco. So I just have to tell you something that I think I probably mentioned a few Christmases ago, but my great aunt was Mrs. C.F. Alexander and she wrote Away in a Manger. <laughs> which is terrible Victorian schmaltzy kind of listen to the words they're absolutely nauseating but we haven't seen a prolific kind of carol writer of, of, of like that uh, really since since the last century there's a gap in the market and I think artists should do that because I mean let's look at Mariah Carey I am a little bit tired of Mariah Carey, actually, all, all the one for yeah. Christmas You. She's lovely. She's amazing. Well done. She's getting all her royalties in. But I would like something different, you know? Yeah. So perhaps less Mariah, less Pogues, less, you know, and more originality. Shall we write a Christmas hit together and become fantastically wealthy? Let's do it. I need Absolutely. a drink first. <laughs> Fernando, thank you very much indeed. That's Fernando Augusto Pacheco there. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Christy O'Grady. Our studio manager was Mariella Bevan. And The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. And if you want to uh, listen to anything from our archives in the meantime, I would urge you to go to Meet the Writers where we've got a sound special on at the moment uh, and it is an interview with Michelle Faber and with Casper Henderson and they're talking about listening and sounds and different ways just to to make sense of the world uh, and so that can be found in our archives alongside of course hundreds of other programmes. I'm Georgina Godwin, I'm going to be back with you on The Globalist first thing tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>